Um, so welcome to Aletheia Church. I see a lot of new faces this morning. Um, I, I know that I, I talked to a bunch of pastors this past week who were on the fence on whether they should meet this week or, or where they shouldn't. So let me just address the elephant in the room uh, because it's all we're going to be hearing about and talking about over the course of the next several weeks uh, in the news and um, uh, probably in our, our circle of friends and what, what our country is facing and really in reality what the world is facing right now is probably unprecedented uh, in, our, in our time. And so uh, I have a few thoughts and, and just want to let you guys know that the decision to meet this morning for us at the church was not taken lightly either. Uh, we were on the phone yesterday morning even with the Florida Department of Health who kind of gave us the thumbs up and said, you guys are free to meet if you guys want to. Uh, but we have changed things this morning from the way that we normally do things. We're going to ask you guys to continue to um, exercise sound judgment and be wise. Um, you know, it was interesting even yesterday talking to some people like, do you think anyone will be there? I'm like, yeah, we kind of have the age range that's invincible. And so they're, they're going <laughs> to... They're going to kind of be there and think that everything's going to be okay. Uh, but the reality is, is this, is that we need to uh, not just be thinking about ourselves in this whole situation. That there are going to be tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of people that are probably more vulnerable than maybe you are in your state. And that you need to be thinking about them as you make decisions over the coming weeks and months uh, as we handle this. So let me give you guys just a few thoughts I have on how I would love for Aletheia Church to approach uh, this outbreak, this pandemic, and how, how if we respond to it uh, in, in, in these ways, maybe we might be able to be a light, an example, and love our community well uh, in this time. And so as, a, as of me writing down these numbers on Friday, over 128,000 people had contracted the coronavirus. I think it's over 200,000 now worldwide from what I saw even this morning. Uh, 4,700 people had lost their lives. And, and, and let me just say something because this is, this is where I start getting frustrated in the midst of all this. And just so you guys know, you're going to hear a little bit of emotion come out in me and some of this. But I'm an Enneagram 8. And so in, in that, right, I am, my, my predisposition towards something like this is to automatically kind of brush it aside and not take it seriously. Okay? And so therefore, right, because I know that that's my propensity, right, I'm trying to be extra careful not to do this. But if 4,700 people as of Friday had lost their lives and... Uh, all I keep seeing and hearing from people is like, oh, it's a relatively low number. It's less than 3%. We don't really know what's going on. And yes, I understand the statistics, but those are people made in the image and likeness of God. They matter to him. They are souls uh, who may spend eternity in damnation because they didn't hear the gospel. And we don't care because they're nothing but a number and a statistic. And we need to care about that. It matters. I don't, I don't care if the death toll is 3%. I don't care if it's 10%. I don't care if it's 1%. It matters, right? Any loss of life matters because we are made in the image and likeness of God, right? So here's, here's how I think we should respond. I have a, a slide up here, and it's going to have a few things to, for us to think through before we get into our text uh, this morning. But here is what I would hope that this world pandemic and situation leads us to think through in the coming weeks and months as a church and as the body of Christ. Number one is this, that it would remind us of our own fragility. Right? Will you throw Psalm 103 up there for me, uh, Kyle? As, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. Right? I think like there is a uh, very real reality that when something like this happens, that we are faced with our own mortality and that we are not invincible, right? That, that when we're young and vibrant and healthy, we always think it can't be me, right? I've got, you know, statistically, right, I'm 34. Statistically, I've got a good 40 plus years of life left, and that's if the life expectancy, right, doesn't get better over the next 40 years, right? My wife's got even more time because she's younger than me and she's a woman. Ladies, you get to outlive us. Congratulations, Right? The reality is, is like we all think, like, I've got all this time, I've got all this time. We are promised nothing. Right? And something like this can be God's grace towards us to snap us out of a sense of invincibility and remind us that we are vulnerable, finite creatures beholden to a sovereign and holy God. Right? Number two. Right? I would hope that this would cause us to reflect during the difficulties ahead. Guys, life is going to change drastically if it hasn't for you already. Right? 
Some of you may be in quarantine in a couple weeks. Uh, some of you may have friends that um, are already panicking and don't want to be around anybody. Some of you guys are introverts, and this is the greatest thing that has ever happened to you because they, the, the, for years you've been living in isolation and not really wanting to be around people, but all the extroverts told you you were wrong, and now you get to look at them and say, no, you're wrong now. Right now, I can be in a place, and right, and I'm not the weird one. You are, right? But here's what I here's what I mean by I think that this should cause us to reflect, right? In the coming weeks, we are going to be inconvenienced, we are going to be bored, right? We are going to be stuck around the same people over and over again. I love my kids. I'm I'm not really looking forward to the next two weeks of constant interaction with them. And I love my family. Don't get me wrong. But all the parents in here are like, yeah, I get it. Like, you college students are like, oh, but you're married. Like, isn't it the greatest? Yes, it is great. But you try being around somebody 24-7, 365, nonstop, and not get a little annoyed with them. Right? Jackie's like, uh-huh. I'm, I have to be around Kevin the next two weeks. I'm really annoyed right now. Right? Here's what this is going to do, though. Right? If you take time to reflect and take this season seriously, your idols are going to start coming out. Right? Like, the, the number of people I've heard complaining about March Madness, guys, who cares? The Gators weren't going to win anyway. <laughs> Sorry to break it to you. They weren't. Right? Like, here, here is the reality, guys. Right? If you are inconvenienced for the next few weeks, but it saves thousands of lives, is that not worth it? Right? If your favorite baseball team season doesn't start for a few weeks, is that, is that not worth it? If you miss the Justin Bieber concert, is he even torn right now? I don't know, right? If you miss, some of you guys are like, no, like you just totally sold yourself out that you're a huge believer, by the way, right? Telling me no, right? If you don't get to do these things, but it saves lives, guys, it's worth it, right? And as these idols start coming out, right, what you need to realize is are you choosing preference over what God might call for you in loving and serving others, and if you're like me, like I, I am, I'm like, I'm like super frustrated. I'm like, man, like no sports. My favorite f- soccer team for the first time in 30 years is probably going to win the Premier League and they're probably going to cancel the season. My, my idol's coming out. I'm like, oh man, like this sucks. Right? They're not going to win the championship. I need to repent of that because it doesn't matter. It's a, it's a stinking trophy of, for a bunch of people that live in England. And I don't even live there. Right? That we can just take time to reflect, and when our idols start coming to the surface, instead of griping and complaining and having a poor attitude and giving in like everyone else around us, we can repent and believe that God is enough. Number three, our need to remember that God is still sovereign and pray. Right through Ephesians 1 verse 11 up there for me, will you? In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. I just always love anyone that's like, I don't believe in God's sovereignty. Just go read Ephesians 1. Right? God is sovereign. End of story. We can discuss the ins and outs and the intricacies of it, but God, the creator of the universe, is sovereign over all things. And in this, let me just say this, God is not taken by surprise with the coronavirus. He's not surprised that some people are going to panic and some people are not going to react in the way that they should. God is not surprised by any of this. He's not taken back by any of it. But in that, right, this does not mean that we don't go to him in prayer and ask for him to move, right? James chapter 5, verse 16, I'll throw it up there. I'll just explain to you. James, this is like, look, we pray because God listens to prayer and prayer matters, Right? Just because God is sovereign doesn't mean we don't petition to him and ask for him to move. John says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, that he hears us and works in response to our prayers if they're in accordance to his will. Guys, I would imagine that God cares about the lives of human beings, meaning if we're praying for people and praying for God to move and respond, it might be in his will. Meaning that nothing is done in vain if it's taken to the Lord in prayer. And so may we during this time when you don't have hours to watch sports, right? Or you're not in the classroom in the coming weeks. Or your job has asked you to work remotely or whatever it may be. Respond in such a way that you go to the Lord in prayer more and petition for him to move. 
because this is not beyond him. Lastly, this, how should we respond? Number four, our hope. And where do we find it? Guys, God's common grace to us is that there is much we understand and can do to help during this crisis, especially for the most vulnerable. Even, even 50 years ago, we would not have had the ability to get information out the way that we would. Even 10 years ago, we would not have had the ability to mass quarantine and give directives to the entire world population the way that we do now. Guys, that's God's grace to us, that we are able to band together in unity and do things ultimately for the good of mankind. Ultimately, as followers of Jesus, we know that while the coronavirus is serious, sin is far more serious. Yet God in his mercy moved into that space, put on human flesh, gave his life for us, loved us, and saved us. Guys, I don't know about you. I, I don't, like, I've, I've seen people all over the spectrum this past week or two in, in response to this. Right? And especially what's really pained me the most is brothers and sisters who seem in complete despair over what's going on. Guys, if, if God loved you enough to send his own son to die for you, might it also indicate to us that he cares about what is going on now? Our hope can be placed in him. Throw John 11 uh, up there for me. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? We hope in the God that rescued us from the greatest threat that has ever existed, sin and death. And we hope that all will be set right, including the coronavirus. And we know that because of Christ, if not in this life, then in the next. Guys, this is a great opportunity, as I said in that first one, that we are reminded of our own fragility to share the gospel and pray for others. It's a great time. Right? I remember the last time that the church probably had an opportunity, at least in the U.S., of this magnitude was right after 9-11. There are, there are times in human history where God allows human events to occur that brings the forefront and reality of our own fragility and humanity before us Right? And this is one of those times, church, may we answer the call and share the good news of Jesus with others. Get FaceTime, get Facebook Messenger. I don't know what it is if you're quarantining, but you can share the good news and it doesn't have to be face-to-face -face in a coffee shop. So here's some specific things that I want you guys to know that we are going to do as a church over the next couple weeks. Right? Uh, our gospel communities will meet, but they will meet at the leader's discretion. So if you are in a gospel community here, you need to find a way to get in contact with your leader and figure out if you're meeting. If you're not comfortable beating, being there, express your concerns to your leaders, right? And we can figure out alternatives for us to meet online. Uh, church, as of right now, will be a week-to-week -week decision, right? We met every day for the last three days as elders and staff talking about what we were going to do this morning and didn't make the decision on, on this morning until yesterday at noon after having talked with the Department of Health, right? That we will do our best based upon current information and the recommendations of our government leaders and authorities. And guys, let me just pause and stop there for a second, okay? One of the things that has frustrated me over the course of the last couple of days is I've seen Christians on social media, and if you can't handle yourself during this time period, I would just advise you to uninstall Facebook or Twitter, just self-police, right? But the reality is this. I've seen Christians be like, I'm not listening to authorities. Only God can tell me what to do. Then you did not listen to the verses that God told you to submit to government authorities because he is the one that put them in place over you. Okay, and, and this is not like a soapbox moment for me to yell at you because, again, I told you I'm an Enneagram 8. I'm right there with you in spirit. I want to just buck the trend and be like, no, I do what I want. Don't tell me what to do. Right? But God has asked me to submit to the men and women that he has placed in authority over me. Right? And so we as a church will do that right, whenever the time comes for us to listen to the recommendations, which we did this morning even in meeting. And then I would encourage you, if you can handle being on social media in this time, to follow us on social media platforms, although we'll attempt to send out emails and other ways to, to communicate with you guys what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks, okay? So if you guys will take a second to just bow your head with me, 
I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray for our city. I'm going to pray for our state. I'm going to pray for our government officials, and I'm going to pray for the world, right? And last, I'm going to pray that God would move. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can meet this morning. And Lord, you know, as I asked that, I'm still torn on whether this was even the right decision or not. We think it was, but if it's not, God, would you forgive us? God, we need you. As a people, we cry out to you, God, we need you. God, I hate that it takes something as serious as a world outbreak and pandemic of a virus to bring us to that place where we might recognize our need but we need you. God, I pray first and foremost for us as a church and for the church worldwide. Help us to be a people that are hopeful and loving and serving others in this time. God, I ask that you would protect the vulnerable and you would lead us to inconvenience ourselves if need be to do the same. That we would minimize the loss of human life in all of this. God, I ask that you provide a quick and safe solution or resolution to this situation. And God, that we would submit and listen to those that you have placed in authority over us. Not begrudgingly, but lovingly. Because you've asked us to. God, I pray for the wisdom of our leaders. The mayors and councilmen of this city and and the commissioners of this city, of this county. God, I pray for the governors and state senators and House of Representatives for the state of Florida. God, I pray for Congress and our president. God, I pray for leaders all over the world that you might give them wisdom on how we are to operate in this time. And God, most of all, will you use this to remind us of our own frailty, our own mortality, and may it lead to many people coming to know you as Lord and Savior, knowing the promises of revelation that for those that are in Christ, one day every tear will be wiped away. There will be no more pain, no more death, only worship of you for eternity. God, I thank you that even in the midst of so much chaos, we can have this time this morning as a body of Christ to gather together to encourage one another and have our minds reset and our hope restored and set in you. May you do that this morning, and I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you guys ready for the actual sermon now? If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Acts chapter 13. Uh, That is where we are going to be this morning and where we are going to be next week. Uh, The sermon this week uh, is is entitled Empowered to Be the Church, and it's going to be part one of a two-part sermon as we work through Acts chapter 13. And as we have studied the book of Acts as a church, um, it has been a beautiful reminder to us, if you've been here with us, of just God's faithfulness to his church over time. Right, That we see in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus speaking to the disciples, and the theme of the entire book of Acts is shared with us uh, in that verse, that we will be his witnesses right, in Judea and Samaria, uh, and even to the ends of the earth, that Jesus shares that the church uh, will do that, and that he will be faithful to them as they share the gospel, as they go forward and plant more churches. And we have seen time and time again, God keep his promise to the church. We have seen time and time again, God was faithful through the power and the work of the Holy Spirit to see the gospel go forward, even in the midst of opposition, and that people that did not know the true God were now saved and in Christ. And so when we get to Acts chapter 13, what I see as I read Acts 13 is this beautiful reminder, right, one of God's faithfulness, but I also see Luke beginning to answer the question for us, now that he's kind of laid the groundwork that the gospel is going forward, of what kind of church is Jesus building? What kind of church is Jesus building here in Acts 13? And in Acts 13, the the church we're going to see is the church at Antioch. 
And, and what I want you guys to know about that church is, number one, it was a global church. There were people from all over the world that became a part of this church and a part of this ministry during their time at Antioch. You're going to see that it had diverse leadership, uh, both socioeconomically, uh, politically, uh, racially, culturally, that the church itself was extremely diverse and that they were serious about God and honoring him. And that the last thing we see out of the church in Antioch is that, is that this church was a catalyst for church planning. Now, some of you guys have been around at Aletheia long enough to have had, had me say to you or tell, to you, tell you in a members meeting or describe the vision of this church to you that I was like, hey, we're just trying to be the church in Antioch. That, that one of the things that was fascinating about the church in Antioch is they, would, they were just sending people out constantly. And for any of you that have lived in Gainesville long enough to know how transient this city is, and especially the demographic that we are primarily trying to reach, we have on average about 36 months with you guys, right? And so our goal as a church and as, as leaders in this ministry is to invest in you, to disciple you, to love on you, because wherever you end up, whether you stay in Gainesville for the next 30, 40, 50 years of your life, or you end up right in Pakistan, or you end up in New York City, or you end up in Rome, or you end up in South America somewhere, that God is going to be sending people from this church all over the world, and we want you sent out as fully formed disciples who are going to live out the mission of God in your context. One of the things I have loved so much about being the pastor of this church is when, when people leave this church, they go take a job in Seattle or they go take a job in Nashville or they're out in L.A., and I get a call from their local church, right, and their pastor calls me and just says, thank you so much for sending so-and-so and recommending our church to so-and-so here. They are a huge blessing to our church already, and they've only been there a month. Guys, that, do you have any idea how happy that makes me? Every year there's weeping and gnashing of teeth in this building as we send you guys out. And then after we send you out, I get the joy of seeing you impact the kingdom because as we stand before God one day, I'm going to be able to, God's going to be like, what did you guys do? And we're like, uh, and hopefully, right, I'm going to be able to stand before the Lord and say, we disciple people, we train people, and we saw a global movement for the glory of your name, Jesus, because we were faithful with what you gave us. And so that's what we want. Like, I, I would love for all of you in this room to be here for the next 40 years or however long I have left on this earth, right? It's really hard saying bye to friends, right? It's, it's really hard saying bye to people that you love, right? But God has designed our church to be in the context of a city that is constantly revolving. And so we're going to be faithful to him. And we have a lot to learn from the church at Antioch because that's what they were doing. People were coming in for business. They were coming in for politics. They were coming in for, for different reasons. They weren't there for long. They were getting saved. And then the church was like, we got to go. We got to go. There's, there's, there's people lost. There's people perishing. They don't know Jesus. Let's go and tell them. And so I have four things that we can draw out of Acts 13, and that if we live these things out as a church, I believe we will be faithful to what God is asking us to do. Let me share those four things with you, and then today we're only going to cover the first two. All right, so here they are. What can we learn from the church in Antioch, and how can we be empowered to be the church? Number one, we can gather with intentionality. Number two, we can engage in spirit-empowered mission. Number three, we can preach a clear message. And number four, we can participate in gospel-centered multiplication. And if you're sitting there and you're like, Kevin, you're being really churchy with these words, and I don't know what any of these things mean, don't worry. I'm going to break them down for you and explain what I'm talking about when we get there, okay? So these are going to be the four things we see throughout Acts 13 as we look at what God is doing through the church at Antioch. So let's look at verses 1 through 3 in Acts chapter 13. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers... Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. All right, so what's the first thing we see here? Because right, it seems like Pretty, pretty much like if you read these first three verses, you just see something kind of simplistic. Like it seems like a very like minute detail in the greater theme and story of what uh, Luke has been sharing with us about the early church in Acts. 
And yet, I think there are two pretty cool things that you can see just in these three verses, right? First of all, look at the relational harmony that's centered around Jesus here in these three verses. Notice the people that are listed. We've got Barnabas, right? Back in Acts chapter 4 is the first time that we are introduced to Barnabas. You can throw that verse up on the screen if you want for me, but it's the first time we're introduced to Barnabas. And here's what we learn about him, right? He's a native of Cyprus. Um, He's a Levite. Uh, He's called Barnabas, which means um, son of encouragement, but he's also known as Joseph, right? This is the first time we hear about him, and we, we see pretty early on that Barnabas is a generous dude. He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet, right? So the first guy we see is this guy from Cyprus, which is a, an island in the middle of the Mediterranean, right? He, he's, he's a Levite, so he's a descendant of the tribe of Levi, right? He's a Jew, right? He loves Jesus, yet he's from Cyprus, and, and he is a part of this group. Then the next person we see, Simeon. We don't know a ton about him, Right? But we, they use the term Niger to describe him, which means that he was likely of African descent. Right? Then we see Lucius of Cyrene, which is from Libya, which is North Africa. Right? Then the next person we see listed here is Manan. And I find this guy fascinating. The word Manan means um, foster brother. That's what it's often translated. So this guy was likely the foster brother of a guy by the name of Herod the Tetrarch. Okay? If you don't know who Herod the Tetrarch is, he's kinda, he was the, kind of the Jewish king at this time. He was a puppet king, basically, for Rome, but he was set up there. His dad was the one that killed all the babies and tried to have Jesus killed. So this guy likely grew up in the same palace as the dude that tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby, right? Grew up with Herod uh, the Tetrarch as his, like, foster brother, right? And then... Some, you know, 20, 30 years later down the line, he's in Antioch and he's a part of the leadership of the local church that's going to be planting churches worldwide. It's fascinating, right? The gospel just does crazy things, right? Then the next guy, Saul, also called Paul, right, who's from Tarsus. We see him at first in Acts chapter 8. We've talked about him at length. This guy was literally murdering Christians, Then you get to Acts chapter 9, he's on the road to Damascus, and God radically saves and transforms him. Guys, these people should not be in a room together. (laughs) Like, it doesn't make any sense, right? From a practical and cultural standpoint, it wouldn't make any sense for them to be together. This type of unity and diversity was not common in the first century. It wasn't. There was all sorts of racial disunity. There was all sorts of uh, cultural disharmony, right? They did not get along. Jews literally looked down on the entire rest of the world if they were not Jewish. And yet you see these people in the room together because we see the gospel bringing together diverse groups of people from diverse backgrounds with diverse gifts and abilities for one person, the renown of Jesus. The gospel breaks down these barriers. And so we see here in these first three verses that God brings together a church from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And in that diversity, here's some other things we see about them. They're serious about God. I mean, it says that they're worshiping the Lord, and that word worshiping there in the Greek means serving others at their own cost, right? It says that they're fasting, and it says that they're praying. And this seriousness about God can be seen in their gathering, what they did, how they worshiped, how they loved the city that they were in, how they loved one another, and they became known. This, Antioch was the first place that they became known as Christians, And the beautiful thing is that this seriousness led them to to pursue Jesus' commands in Acts 1.8 with great faithfulness. And so we see in these first three verses that they are praying fervently as to what God would have them do, and God answers. Now, what would it look like for us to be in a community like this? What would that look like? Like We have some diversity here, I get it, but we're predominantly white. Let's just call it what it is. What would it look like for us to lay down preferences 
to lay down idols for the sake of harmony and unity for the gospel? Guys, I don't, I, by the way, I'm asking that question. I don't know if I have all the answers to that. But it's going to take honesty. It's going to take openness. It's going to take transparency. It's going to take repentance as we seek to live this out. What would it look like if we worshiped and served together faithfully? If, as a church, we said, I'm going to lay down my preferences. I'm going to love Jesus, and I'm going to love others well. What would that look like? What would it look like if you prayed together and for one another? Guys, I, one, we have got an epidemic around us of people that are lonely and depressed. And I know that mental health is an issue. But I also think, church, we are failing to love and pray for others and encourage others. I think we are failing at that. Because if we were doing that, it might not be as bad as we see it. And I am not discounting the reality of mental health issues out there. Do not hear me saying that. But if we loved others well, prayed together, loved on one another, fasted, right, denied ourselves for the sake of the gospel. I know it seems counterintuitive to be talking about the importance of gathering intentionally the way that they are here in Acts chapter 13 when we're in the middle of self-imposed isolation and talking about quarantines. But guess what? You probably have a cell phone. You probably have a computer. Can you call people? How many of you guys screen your calls? I heard a few there. Because it's inconvenient to have to talk to somebody. How many of us could encourage somebody simply by saying a text, sending a text? What would it look like to, to skip a Netflix show and spend 20 minutes loving on somebody and catching up with somebody you haven't talked to in a while? To pray with them, to check in on them. Maybe in the midst of this next season we're about to enter into as a, as a society, you could spend more time intently studying God's word. Knowing it better, knowing what God might have of you and how he might you know, teach you in obedience to love others well. And then share that with someone else. It's one of the things I love about the community Bible reading program here at Aletheia. If I don't read my Bible one day, guess what? Somebody else did, and guess what they're sharing with me? God's word. What God's teaching them. What they're learning. How God might impact me through that. You can be that same example of encouragement to someone else. We are quite literally going to be forced to fast from many pleasures and leisure activities coming up. You're going to be forced to do it. You're not going to have a choice. How might you use this as a time to see and pray for God, what God might want from you? Here's one of the things about fasting that I, I think that I'll just share with you guys for a second. I think God uses fasting in two planes. One, it's to help you recenter yourself on him and your neediness for him. But oftentimes I have found when I have fasted for, from something or eliminated something from my life, I realize how little I needed that. Like I said, a lot of idols are going to be revealed in the, in the coming weeks. I pray to you guys that as you see them, you repent of them and you turn to Jesus. As we're forced to fast from these things where we turn our gaze intentionally to him. And then maybe if we gathered intentionally, what would it look for us, like for us to serve our neighbors in the coming weeks? I have elderly neighbors in my neighborhood. I've already told them, any way I can help you over the next couple of weeks, you just let me know. You've got my number, call me, we'll go pick up groceries for you, we'll do whatever you need. Right, to help you right, in the midst of this season of vulnerability. How can you serve others who might not be able to do some of the things that you are able to do over the next coming weeks? Intentional community frequently happens in the settings we have created as a church, but it doesn't have to. If we are intentional about being the church, you guys can do this without me, and you can do it without us as leaders setting up things for you guys to do. As a church, let's seek to be intentional and grow in that intentionality. In the coming weeks, use technology, develop deeper prayer and, and Bible reading habits, and in that, incre increase your sphere of influence via telephone calls, 
via FaceTime, Skype, whatever your preferred messaging app is, and love others well. Because it's the example we see here in Acts 13 that the Church of Antioch displays to us so well. And so we see that the church at Antioch gathers, right, with intentionality, right, to both love one another, to love God and love their community. We also see this, right? We see them engage in spirit-empowered mission. Let me start by looking at verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Right? So, the Holy Spirit speaks to them. He says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Right? This is one of those really cool moments in Scripture where you see the church gathering together. They're being intentional. They're, they're looking to hear from the Holy Spirit. And God basically just sends them a direct message. He slides into their DMs and is like, hey, look, here's what's going on. I know I just really dated myself there, by the way. I know. Like, I'm not cool like you 20-somethings. It's okay. Right? I've heard the lingo. I can still use it, right? right? That God sends them this message. He's like, look, listen up. Set apart Barnabas, set apart Saul for the work to which I have called them. Right? The Holy Spirit gives specific directions to the things that the church is supposed to be doing. Right? And for Paul and Barnabas, this means go and plant churches around the Mediterranean Roman world. It's like, well, this is what you're supposed to be doing. Get out of Antioch, say goodbye to your friends, go. You're going to go church plant. Now, note this. It doesn't always have to look like this, right? Sometimes some of you guys will hear the voice of God speak to you and tell you to do something. I have a personal opinion on that, right? If you hear that voice, you had darn well better make sure you listen to it, right? Because in my experience, when I feel like I have audibly heard the Lord speak to me, it was in seasons of extreme disobedience to what God had already told me to do, right? So if you hear that voice, listen up. Okay? A lot of you guys are not going to experience that. That's okay. When I read the Old Testament, the entire nation of Israel does not hear the voice of the Lord all the time. It's usually like one, two, three, maybe four or five people. Right? And that's okay. But God has revealed himself to us in his word. And Acts 1.8 gives to us a Holy Spirit empowered and in charge directive to be his witnesses if we are in Christ. So you're like, I don't know what God's will for my life is. Go read Acts 1.8. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with my life. Go read Acts 1.8. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Go read your Bible. All of it. Not just the parts you like. Go read all of it. God will speak to you through this book. Right? You don't need to learn some sort of special meditation habits. Right? You don't need to some, uh, achieve some special level of holiness. God has revealed to us his will in his word. And there will be times when more specific instruction might be had, but we don't always need it. And if we know the main principle of what God wants us to do, we can walk out the intricacies of our own life in obedience to what God has asked of us. This means that we can be his witnesses in our classrooms, our neighborhoods, our social groups, and even online. Let me give you an example of what I consider to be Holy Spirit-directed faithfulness without it looking exactly like it does here in Acts chapter 13. So, you know, as some of you guys know, this Tuesday, Alethea will turn seven years old. Can we have God a round of applause for that, by the way? Right? Like, happy birthday, Alethea Church. We're all in quarantine. The party's going to be real boring. <laughs> right? We're going to be seven years old this Tuesday. Right? And one of the things that's like, like that I, I just think about is I get to look back and think on this of like just how faithful God has been to us as we've seen this church started. We've seen hundreds of people come to know Jesus. We've baptized somewhere between 75 and 80 people according to our numbers. And we have terrible record keeping here. Not anymore, though, because Theo's doing that for us. Give Theo a round of applause for me real quick, Theo, yeah? Needed you seven years ago, buddy. That we have seen God do some amazing things since we've been here. But one of the things that myself and some of the elders, and Derek's not here this morning because his wife just had a baby, 
yes, there's another celebration, right? That he and I will remember from those early days, right? We were like, you know, God, we want to impact the nations. We don't want to just impact Gainesville. We don't want to just impact Florida. We want to impact the nations. But we felt like if we, if we tried to force ourselves to do something, that it wouldn't be obedient, that it would just be us trying to prove to everyone that we were a church that cared about global missions. And so I remember for the first two years of us being here, we were just like, God, will you, will you do something just organically? Will you organically do something so that our church can begin to have an impact right, on reaching the nations, showing that you care about the nations? And so we pray for God to open doors internationally. And, you know, somewhere along, like in the first year of our church being in existence, this guy by the name of Mario Escobar started attending our church. He's not related to Pablo Escobar, although he is Colombian. And he even had a mustache a couple weeks ago that looked like Pablo Escobar. I don't know why in the world he would choose to do that, but anyway. He's not here this morning, so I can make fun of him, right? So Mario's like, hey, I've got this friend in Colombia, like, would you guys be willing to like, just pray for them and, and maybe partner with some of the ministry they're doing in some of these neighborhoods in, in Barranquilla, Colombia? I'm like, yeah, yeah, of course, like, absolutely. And so we started sending toys down. And you know, we were a church of like 50 people at the time, and we're like gathering toys for this toy drive to send down there so that they can give toys to kids that aren't going to have toys at Christmas and share the gospel with them and their families. And then a couple months later, he's like, hey, we're going to, for those same kids, we're going to do a school supply drive. Will you you know, maybe get some school supplies together and send them so we can use this to love them. I'm like, yeah, sure, and whatever. And then finally, he's like, hey, will you come down here and visit? And maybe you guys could just see what we're doing and be a part of what was going on. So we, our first mission trip as a church together was to go to Colombia, where most of the people that we took did not speak the language, right? I, like, I was like one of the best Spanish speakers there, and any of you guys have been around me, like, my Spanish is not great, right? And we get there, right? And God, God just blesses this time together. Right? And we, we, we build this super tight bond with the leadership of this church, and we just love the community that we're, we're getting to serve, and so this relationship just continues to grow. And then Ruben, the pastor of Iglesia Alumbra in Barranquilla, Colombia, right? at the time, he was just leading this little organization called Manos, and he was a vice principal at a Christian school there in Barranquilla. He's like, Pastor Kevin, will you guys buy us a building so that we can do ministry in that neighborhood? And so the elders get together, and we're like, all right, first of all, it seems like God is answering our prayers for us to have this international focus, so praise God for that, but what does it mean to be faithful, right? Does God just want us to build this building? One of the things we noticed is like there was not a strong connection for this ministry to the local church, and so the elders are like, we love what they're doing, but the church needs to be involved somehow, so they either need to plant a church in that neighborhood, or they need to partner with the church, so I go back to Reuben, and I'm like, you know, Reuben, we love you. We want to help in any way we can. But we feel like the one thing we see kind of lacking, right, in, in, in your, your model of ministry is a connection to the local church so that the local church knows that it can take over these ministries and be a blessing in their community. He's like, Pastor, you're right. We're going to partner with a church in that neighborhood. But it's not wise for us to plant a church in that neighborhood because we don't live there. We need people that actually live in that neighborhood. But I've got 55 volunteers that are viewing me as their pastor. I think I need to plant a church with those people in our neighborhood. And guys, they did. They just celebrated being three years old a couple weeks ago. Right? God has been faithful. We've gone down there. We've opened doors. And then I remember this. Right? Right? God never said, Kevin, you must go to Columbia. You must go to Bonaki. I never, I never got that direct message from God. But as we've prayed for God to be faithful, he's answered prayers. We've been in this. And then I remember I started praying for this. God you know, thank you so much for letting us have an influence in Barranquilla. Thank you for allowing us to help see a, a gospel-centered church started there. God, will you start more gospel-centered, Jesus-loving churches all throughout Colombia? And will you raise up for Reuben men who are going to love him well and partner with him in ministry so that more churches might be started? And when I started praying that about three, three and a half years ago, like there was nothing. We didn't know anybody in Colombia. We were struggling to find partnerships, whatever else. Now we have almost half a dozen churches that are affiliated with the same church planning network as us, Acts 29, in Colombia. Reuben himself is in the throes of, getting, of already planning a church in another city in Colombia. They just need to find a pastor who can lead and take over the congregation because they already have like 75 people that are showing up to these meetings that they're holding once a month in Santa Marta. And then here's the really, really cool thing. Last summer, we took a team of people with us 
to go down to Columbia and just hold like a little VBS, love on them, do some evangelism in the parks and see God do things. And we, to be honest, like at this point, I kind of feel like we're just going because they want us to come down and visit them. And so like, I'll be honest, I was kind of like, God, like, are we supposed to even go? We, so we took a small team. Here's what God did with that. Right? The men and women that we took with us loved on those kids so well in Las Flores right, that the parents noticed it because their kids started coming back and were talking about all these things they were learning and how they were being loved on by the, the people from Colombia that work with Manos and these crazy Americans that were showing up in their neighborhood. Right? And they started talking. About, and guess what the parents started asking Ruben to do? Pastor, will you plant a church in our neighborhood? We, we want this. We want this for our neighborhood. We want the gospel to go forward in our neighborhoods, right? That in January, they came to him and said, we're, we're ready. Whatever you want us to do, we're ready to start playing a church now. Guys, that's what it means to be faithful, right? That's what it means to hear from the Lord in the midst of all of this. And it doesn't have to look exactly like it does here for Barnabas and Saul, Right, but that if we are faithful to what God has called us to do in Acts 1-8, and guys, if you are a part of this church, you are a part of that victory story. Your prayers, your service here, right? your tithes, your, your gifts, your abilities, whatever you've done, you have contributed to this body of Christ being faithful to the mission of God and therefore that same mission going to Columbia and seeing more gospel-centered churches take root there. Guys, I'm super, like, I'm more excited about what's going on in Colombia right now than I am in the U.S., right? Because there is, like, a great awakening going on there right now. Like, every time I go down there, it's just like, hey, like, you want to talk about, like, if I go out on campus here, I'm on a tangent, Jackie, sorry. She just looks at me and goes, yeah, you are. Right, if I go out on campus here at UF and, like, I want to talk to somebody about God, it's like pulling teeth. You would, you would think I was, like, asking them to, get, like, donate a pint of blood on the spot to me. It's like, hey, like, would you talk about God? <gasps> You said God. Yeah. Scary? No? Yeah? Okay. Like, they don't want to talk about it. You go to Columbia, it's like, hey, like, I'm from a church. Let's talk about God. Like, oh, yeah, I'd love to talk about God. What do you think about God? Right? There's this opportunity there to see for the first time, right, a major outbreak for the gospel. And here's, here's my prayer. Here's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping that one day us as Americans are asking the Colombians, what can we do to be more missional, to plant churches and reach people for the gospel? Because I see the hunger. A lot of it in people, the same age of people I see in this room right now, right, for the gospel and making much of Jesus. If we are faithful, we will see God move in mighty ways, including church planting, the same way Antioch does. If you read verses 4 through 12, I'm not going to read them right now. Right, Paul and Barnabas, they go out, they sail to Salamis, right? They, they preach Jesus in the synagogues as they go out. They go to Paphos, and, and they meet this uh, false prophet named Bar-Jesus, which is awesome because his name means son of Jesus, which is just hilarious because they're preaching Jesus, and his name means son of Jesus, but he's actually a false prophet, and he's this terrible person. I, I love that part of the story. And they meet this guy named Sergius Paulus, right? And as they're, like, sharing with this guy, Sergius Paulus, Bar-Jesus is like, whoa. Well, like, don't do that. Like, I've got his ear, right? You might lead this guy astray, right? And Paul's just casually, yeah, you're going to go blind. It's going to happen, right? And like immediately he goes blind, right? And Sergius Paulus believes. He starts following Jesus. And leadership for a church starts getting formed there. And the gospel goes forward as churches get planted. I'm not saying every mission opportunity will look like this, but if we're faithful, it's going to look like the same opportunity we had last summer when we went down to Bonanquilla. It's going to look like the same opportunities that some of you guys got when you went to Guatemala two weeks ago and got to give clean water to people for the first time and share the gospel with them. As we network and create partnerships and pray for one another, encourage one another, and live out the mission of the church, people get saved and churches get planted. When we engage in spirit-empowered mission with intentionality, people come to know Jesus. Lives get changed. Not just presently, but eternally. Churches get planted. And we get to experience and see God's faithfulness in more profound 
ways than we could ever imagine. And so here's how I want to encourage us as we finish up this morning. How can we respond to these two things we see here and what, what does it mean to be the, the church? Today we see in our text in Acts 13, right, that if we want to be the church, live out the mission of, of the gospel as a church, we gather with intentionality, even if it means we might have to adjust for a few weeks because of the coronavirus. That we gather with intentionality and we engage in spirit-empowered mission by serving others, loving others, and faithfully preaching the good news, which we're going to see even in more detail next Sunday. Guys, 2020 has been a strange year so far, has it not? It's getting more and more bizarre by the minute. And if health officials are correct, it's going to be weird for a while. It just is. As we experience this strange new normal in the coming weeks, we can develop rhythms and patterns that allow us to display to the world around us a profound hope in Jesus a sincere love for others, a deep abiding desire to serve, and a hope and a peace that goes beyond all understanding. Guys, it's a great time to serve our community. Please listen to the authorities in your life in the coming weeks, and not begrudgingly, but with love, with patience, you serve others and help those vulnerable around you. If you don't know anybody who's vulnerable around you, you need to get out of your bubble. You do. They're, they're, they're easy to find. Get out of your bubble. Love on somebody. Pray for our community. Pray for leaders. And pray that you as one person made in the image and likeness of God and if you are in Christ a part of his church globally, would band together with your brothers and sisters both in this room and around the world to make much of Jesus in the weeks ahead. I'm gonna invite the band back up now and I'm gonna pray for us. Will you bow your head? I'm gonna ask God to move in some very specific and particular ways. Just so you guys know, normally we do communion during this time and this is a time of response and reflection. Obviously, as elders, we did not feel that it would be wise because the way that we do communion here is about the best way to transmit communicable diseases probably known to man, other than maybe hanging out with kids under the age of 10 for 20 minutes. And so next week, we hope to have a way to do communion here if God would allow us to continue to meet and gather. That's going to be uh, less risky, right? But for now, right, Please continue in the spirit of reflection and response, right, to what God might ask you to do in the coming weeks and months so that we can be the church that's empowered to reach others the way we see here in Acts 13. Will you bow your head and pray with me?